Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Mask of the Red Death from 1964. This is produced and directed by Roger Corman, distributed by James Nicholson and Samuel Z. Arkoff's American International Pictures. And you know what? Let's just stop there for a moment, because these three men did a lot to shape the horror genre over the course of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and indeed beyond. And between them, they've got over 700 IMDb credits, so it's worth getting a little bit of an idea of who they are, because these guys are going to come up in future episodes, and... Well, you've probably heard of them. I'm not going to assume you know everything about them. I'm not even going to assume I know everything about them. Uh, they got their start in the 50s as independent producers, making low-budget movies aimed squarely at the youth audience. Because they were independent and not bound by the layers of bureaucracy in the studio system, they could move quickly to make films that capitalized on the latest trends. And when I say quickly, I mean it. Corman, in particular, liked to make use of locations and actors he had contracted for a few days longer than it took to make the movie they were hired for in order to shoot scenes that could be incorporated into later movies. Some famous directors like Peter Bogdanovich and Francis Ford Coppola got their start on working on movies like Targets or Dementia 13 that were made in this style. Targets especially. The, the screenwriter was given the instruction... This needs to have Boris Karloff in a role for Boris Karloff, and it needs to involve no more than three days of shooting for him, because that's all I've got him contracted for. Now, when these three men started in the 1950s, the big trend was the atomic horror boom. There had been kind of a wave of gothic in the 30s and 40s, but over time that had kind of become, over World War II really, that kind of became passe, and science fiction became more in as a horror style, so you got films that they made like The Brain Eaters and Terror from the Year 5000 and Teenage Caveman, which doesn't sound like a science fiction movie, or at least not a atomic horror science fiction movie, but the twist at the end is that it all takes place in the future and humanity has reverted to savagery after a nuclear war. Oh, sorry, spoilers. This is why I say it's a spoiler-heavy podcast. Um, Night of the Blood Beast was another Corman movie. They're all movies that blend science fiction and horror. They usually got packaged up into double features. Now, usually in the double feature, the A movie featured a big-name actor and higher production values, while the B movie was often lurid and sensationalistic. Now, B movie is become pretty much just a synonym for lurid, sensationalistic movies without big-name actors or high production values. But honestly, that, you know, a lot of great movies started as B-movies. Night of the Living Dead was the B-picture to Doctor Who and the Daleks when it premiered. It's just kind of the way that these things came out in terms of how they were promoted and advertised. Now, later on, as we got out of the 50s and into the 60s, Hammer Studios over in England hit it big by doing lush, sumptuous, full-color gothic horror revivals. Most American pictures at that point, especially most horror pictures, were still being shot in black and white, so suddenly seeing color, especially color with lots of blood and gore, 
was a huge and exciting thing. Also, because they were in England, they didn't have to deal with the production code, the Hayes Code, which was dying at the time, but didn't really give up the ghost until 1968. And uh, at that point, Hammer Studios, since they were over in England, could film lots of bloody, gory movies, import them, and they would be shown in art house theaters, and there was no rule against showing these movies. The Hayes Code was a production code. It was blocking making them. So Hammer had this huge advantage, and everyone was flocking to Hammer fil uh, films. They had uh, Shakespearean actors and lush, sumptuous sets, because, you know, I mean, this is Britain, where you can't throw a rock without hitting an RSC-trained Shakespearean actor, and there's a crumbling castle going spare every 30 yards or so. This is where we do the Eddie Izzard joke. We all live in castles over there. We long for a bungalow or two. That's my Eddie Izzard impression. I hope you all like it, because it'll probably crop up again. AIP decided to imitate this Hammer uh, horror vibe by doing a series of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, of which today's movie is a part. There was a cycle of about eight of them. Um, later on in the 70s, as satanic horror and biker movies and drug movies hit it big, they pivoted to do films that frequently combined two, three of those genres at once, Corman was uh, himself using psychedelic drugs before it was popular. I mean, that's the thing about being a independent filmmaker. You tend to hang out with a lot of counterculture people. And well before it was exciting in Hollywood, he was experimenting with LSD. He made a movie called The Trip, which is very famous. It's got Bruce Dern. It's one of the very early uh, attempts at doing psychedelia in film. Um... As Hollywood discovered the money machine that was the big-budget blockbuster, though, most of the movies that they were trying to make wound up becoming prohibitively difficult to make on a scale and at a scope that the Hollywood industry was doing. Once you made Star Wars, something like Night of the Blood Beast looks cheap and shoddy by comparison, and that's unfair. Lucas's big contribution to film was not so much better special effects as it was an aesthetic that aimed for documentary-level realism in special effects, which nobody was trying to do before that, except, of course, for Stanley Kubrick with 2001. The point I'm getting at is that Corman was pretty much priced out of that sector of the industry. He couldn't make a movie like... Star Wars. He tried. Uh, he, he gave a production designer named James Cameron his start on a sci-fi epic called Battle Beyond the Stars. Junk Food Cinema has a great episode on that um, if you're interested in picking up another podcast. By this time, by the way, Nicholson passed away in 1972 and Arkoff sold AIP in 1979. He did start up a later independent company, but again, they're having all the same problems. Spielberg and Lucas had in-house effects companies, they had ILM, they had these people who were dedicated to turning out special effects that looked photorealistic, and it just was not going to happen for Corman on the budgets he was working with. It was simply impossible. So Corman eventually retreated to made-for-TV and direct-to-video movies, and he has done very well there. He's still producing movies at the age of 94, and you're probably seeing them on television now. 
well, not literally now, you're listening to a podcast right now, but you get what I'm saying here. The point is, these men's eye for finding revenue streams, and they were very good at that, Corman supposedly never lost money on a motion picture, meant that they packaged a lot of their films up and sold them to television back in the day when black and white movies still aired regularly on UHF stations. And a generation of filmmakers like John Carpenter, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, etc. grew up watching these movies, and they watched them in an age when, realistically speaking, they weren't looking for the zipper on the monster's back, they weren't looking for the seams and the holes in the production values, they were seeing them still with one eye very much in their imagination, and they started dreaming as they grew up and got into film school of what these movies might be like if they looked like the films in their imagination and not the low-budget efforts on their tiny little TV screen. And so you see movies like The Thing, you see movies like The Fog, you see movies like Escape from New York. Carpenter is very clearly influenced by a lot of those Corman junk food classics and has transformed them into high art. And today's filmmakers, because they were influenced by Carpenter, because they were influenced by Spielberg, because they were influenced by Lucas, they are kind of part of that Corman pedigree. And a, a, a lot of times there was people who were directly influenced by Corman because they learned how to work at his side. Again, I mentioned Coppola, I mentioned Bogdanovich, I mentioned James Cameron. He famously gave Jack Nicholson his start, as we will see in a future episode. There's a lot of people that Roger Corman got into the Hollywood system through the back door, and that's worth celebrating. These days, of course, it's much rarer to see black and white films on UHF stations, or indeed anywhere. I was growing up right on the cusp of the era when black and white became terminally unfashionable for mass audiences. I remember watching a lot of these black and white movies on TV. I saw The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Original Thing from Another World, Them, The Incredible Shrinking Man, a lot of movies that are classics of this era, and a lot of you know, kind of, as I say, lower-budget efforts, too. But over the course of the 80s and 90s, they really faded from television. And I can also still recall the furor that erupted over the initial stabs at colorization made by Ted Turner. For many people, this was sacrilege. It was just unthinkable to override a director's decisions about contrast and shot composition. A lot of the people who worked in black and white really loved those high-contrast shadows and those sharp, crisp lines, and the idea of taking that and turning them into color, it, it was really, really upsetting to a lot of people, and many felt like the end product of Ted Turner's initial colorization process looked wan and washed out. There were a lot of comments about the skin tones not looking right, for example. In the end, I kind of feel like the debate was moot. The language of cinema is constantly changing, and even a full-color movie like the one we're about to discuss feels very much of its time. It does not feel like the sort of thing you could put on side-by-side side with something like The Void and say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, those are roughly equivalent. It's not just a technological difference, either. Motion pictures with sound have spent a lot of time evolving away from the stage play that was kind of their point of genesis. 
Um, the silent picture is a whole different creature, and we'll discuss that some other time. But when you look at a movie like Dracula, that was pretty much a direct adaptation of the stage play, and it feels like it. The older a movie is, the less camera movement they'll use, and the more they will convey story through dialogue. That's a generalization to some extent, of course. Oh, and they will also edit less. There will be fewer cuts, longer full-take scenes. This is a technological limitation as much as anything else, uh, because they had to physically edit a film. They had to take a point in the film, cut it, stitch it to another, or tape it to another, and then, you know, make a new master print out of the uh, out of the finally edited film. It was a much more time-consuming process than it is now, and certainly it's gotten easier over time, but a lot of filmmakers did not want to use that effort. And the same is true for early television, if you've ever read any stories about the making of that. This is all somewhat of a generalization, as I say. Filmmakers like Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, they were doing a lot of interesting things with camera movement. Even before Stanley Kubrick got the steady cam for the first time, he was doing more with camera movement. The, but still, when you watch an older movie like The Mask of the Red Death, you'll find that it appears more like a theater play than like a modern movie. It's got more stylized acting. There's not a lot of attempt to be naturalistic. It's, it's very much that theatrical form of acting. The sets aren't making a pretense at naturalism. When you look at this, you, it looks like a castle set more than an actual castle. The, the backdrops tend to be more intended to suggest the sky than to actually be skies. Uh, the camera angles and, and choice of shots generally tend to emphasize the performances. Again, you're going to get longer takes. You're going to get less camera movement. There are certainly some very sumptuous camera movements here. I'm going to use sumptuous a lot for this episode because, my gosh, this movie feels like you could just eat it like chocolate cake. It's that kind of level of rich, textured... It's almost synesthetic in the way that it feels decadent. But it's not going to rely on a lot of these camera movements. Certainly there's a couple of ball scenes that do it that are very nice, the mask itself. But for the most part, if you watch it like a filmed play, it will seem a lot more familiar and comfortable to you than if you try to compare it to the movie you saw last week. Speaking of those actors and the theatrical style of performance, this stars the legendary Vincent Price as Prospero. He has almost too many genre credits to count, including the original version of The Fly, the original version of House on Haunted Hill, a wonderful adaptation of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend called The Last Man on Earth. He has more credits than you can shake a stick at. Hazel Court as Juliana. She did two other Poe adaptations for AIP, The Raven and The Premature Burial, as well as appearing in the first Color Hammer film, The Curse of Frankenstein. Jane Asher as Francesca. Films like Alfie, The Stone Tape, and the remake of A for Andromeda, although she's also very famous for her personal life, which involved a relationship with Paul McCartney of The Beatles at the height of the group's fame. She broke up with Paul and 
people were just absolutely flabbergasted by it, even though it was entirely Paul's fault. David Weston as Gino, he is mostly known for his stage work, of which he has done quite a bit over his long and storied career. Nigel Green as Ludovico, no word on whether he forced Corman to watch the dailies on shooting by wiring his eyes open, but he's probably best known from Jason and the Arcanauts, The Ipcrest File, and The Face of Fu Manchu. Patrick McGee as Alfredo, he was in A Clockwork Orange, but not as the inventor of the Ludovico technique. He was also in horror films like Die Monster Die, Tales from the Crypt, Asylum, and a film with the wonderfully unsubtle title of And Then the Screaming Starts. Skip Martin as Hop Toad. Sadly, he does not have many other credits, which is a shame because he's excellent in this movie. He has got a playful sense of humor. He's got a wonderful physicality to his part when he is pantomiming how Alfredo will look in an ape costume, for example. He, he honestly reminds me a lot of Peter Dinklage. Um, and an uncredited John Westbrook in the role of the Red Death itself. He was also in The Tomb of Lygea, a later film in the Poe cycle, but he's possibly most famous as the voice of Treebeard in Ralph Bakshi's animated Lord of the Rings movie. The film opens with a gorgeously vivid title sequence as the black background of the credits is splashed with bright, bloody splatters of red until it fills up the screen. Red is obviously going to be of great symbolic importance of this film. It's a harbinger of death almost whenever it appears on screen, and it is a color literally forbidden by Prince Prospero from being used at the masquerade, which very strongly symbolizes his power over life and death for most of the movie until he finally does receive his comeuppance. Again, spoilers. We see this harbinger of death uh, use of red almost instantly at the beginning of the movie. This peasant woman in non-specific long-ago Italy. It's supposedly medieval, but it's very much not a specific time period. You are it's it's fairy tale Italy. It is fairy tale Italy and not meant to represent any specific time or indeed really place. Only the names make it give it the feel of of, of Italy at all. Um and for the first few seconds when they show the peasant woman in the forest, there's very little color on screen. It's almost monochromatic, uh almost sepia. Um, but she meets a monk who wears these bright red robes while she's gathering wood, and the monk pulls out a white ro rose and passes his hand over it, and it turns bright red, the same color as the robes. And he hands it to her and tells her to deliver it to her village and tell them their day of deliverance is at hand. Sadly, she doesn't think to ask what they're being delivered from or how that deliverance will come. We then cut to the village, where Prince Prospero is arriving for his annual visit to thank the peasants for their harvest, and he arrives nearly running over a toddler in the process. Again, this is fairy tale uh, country. This is not going to be a subtle movie, and Vincent Price is a magnificently unsubtle actor in it. The prince is clearly not well-liked. Gino, a young man of some apparent standing in the village, he's the one who pulls the uh, toddler out of the carriage's path, 
claims that Prospero has taken so much that the peasants will surely starve, and that the feast he invites them to will be little more than a gorging for the nobles and scraps for the men who are forced to live like dogs. Showing immediately that he knows exactly why he was hired for the role, Vincent Price snaps out, Exactly! With just the right touch of sneering menace and discovers that Gino is lipping off to him because of the prophecy of their impending deliverance, which Ludovico, Gino's future father-in-law, says is specifically, they're all very, very sure, deliverance from his tyr Prospero's tyranny. Prospero's not a patient man, and he immediately responds to this degree of insolence by having them both strangled by the guards, but Gino's future wife, Francesca, shows up and pleads for mercy. She is Ludovico's daughter. Prospero explains that he needs to teach harsh lessons to these two men in order to teach everyone around them the penalties for disobedience, but he offers Francesca a cruel form of lenience. She can choose one of them to survive, but if she does not make the choice, he'll kill them both. However, before she can make her decision, She's interrupted by a scream from another one of the buildings nearby, where the old woman from the beginning of the movie is found dying of a plague known as the Red Death. And the Red Death, the primary symptom on the film is that the skin turns bright red, seems to be almost oozing blood from every pore. It looks like a very painful way to die. Prospero, seeing this, flees the village, taking Francesca, Gino, and Ludovico with him after first confirming that they did not know the dead woman, and he orders the village burned to prevent the spread of the disease. Which, I, I can only imagine it broke Corman's heart having to build the set and then burn it without being able to use it for like three more movies. It's worth mentioning that Price simply exudes a suave, a silky menace in this opening scene, setting the tone for the whole film almost effortlessly. He's evil, yes, and unrepentantly so, but there's a certain remorseless logic to his worldview. It's not sadism for its own sake, as we'll later see, but part of a whole system of belief that we'll get more of as the film goes on. Now, that's not to say he's not a sadist, and certainly much of his worldview is justification for his sadism, but he's got a an actual character. He's got a belief that permeates everything he does and that underpins his character. It makes him an absolutely great villain, and Price really is the perfect person to play him. When they arrive at Prospero's castle, he orders word sent to all the arriving nobles to avoid the ruined village if they wish to be admitted, and then has Francesca bathed and, and dressed with more than a little voyeuristic enjoyment. He orders her to remove her crucifix and promises that Gino and Ludovico are somewhere safe, for the moment. Downstairs, a wild party is already underway with one of Prospero's guests, Alfredo, who acts as sort of a secondary villain, leading the debauchery. But when Prospero comes down, he instantly commands the attention of the room, holding court, literally, on the finer sensibilities of terror to his captive audience. The cinematography here is by Nicholas Rogue, who would later bring Venice to gorgeous life in the film Don't Look Now, and he uses a saturated color palette full effect to create an atmosphere of decadence and flamboyance. There is very little red, 
Don't Look Now actually uses red in very similar symbolic ways to this movie. But he has lovely lavenders and blues and greens that create this very, very lush effect that, that really describe this as an atmosphere where everyone is... Again, they're, they're all like peacocks. They're all trying to outdo one another, and they all have the money to splash out on these elaborate dyes that would have, in fairy tale times, been very expensive. Prospero then presents to little people Esmeralda and Hoptoad to the court. Uh, it should be noted that Verena Greenlaw, who plays Esmeralda, is not a little person. She is a child dubbed with an adult woman's voice. Um, they're there to put on a performance for the nobles. Uh, Esmeralda is a dancer, and she dances beautifully in this small ballet that absolutely enchants Alfredo, although it's very creepy. It seems really more like he's enchanted with her because she's young and innocent, and when you have a child playing that part and the dude is like, oh yeah, I'm really into that, it's so squicky in a way that I don't think they even necessarily intended it to be because they were intending her to be to appear as an adult to the audience. But Alfredo becomes infuriated when she spills his drink and he strikes her on the face. Uh, this will have consequences later on, but the immediate consequence is that it displeases Prospero. He spills another glass of wine right onto Alfredo's face and tells him, basically lets him know that he is now in the court's bad books. Um, Alfredo is humiliated in front of everybody, leading him to want to show up Prospero. All of this will come into play over the course of various subplots. Francesca, fully cleaned up now, arrives at the party, and Prospero demonstrates his authority over the nobles by commanding them to perform in degrading pantomimes to demonstrate their affinity to various animals. Pigs, worms, donkeys, etc. They all seem very happy to obey, and there's certainly an element of decadence to their performances, but you do get the sense that this is not just a case where you need to do what Prospero says, you need to at least appear to be enthusiastic about it. It's hard to tell how much they actually want to be involved in this. Once he is done with his amusement, he announces a costume ball to be held on the Sabbath, and he offers the full wardrobe of the castle for their use, and then he leaves to show Francesca a little tour. Here we get the famous chambers from Poe's story, the yellow chamber leading onto the purple chamber, leading onto the white chamber, leading onto, well, we're not going to see it yet. Prospero forbids her from entering. While he shows her around, Prospero details his philosophy to the first degree. He'll refine it later, we'll get some more scenes of this. But he believes on seeing the world with all its pain and suffering and constant miseries that either God never existed or that he is long dead, and that something else now rules the universe in place of God, something that doesn't care or encourages this kind of suffering. He doesn't elaborate what that is yet, instead sending Francesca to bed for the evening. After sending her away, Prospero meets with his lover, although since this is 1964, their relationship isn't made particularly explicit. Uh, this is Juliana. She is feeling pressured by Francesca's arrival and 
Francesca's potential as a rival for Prospero's affections, and she promises that she is ready to give herself over to all of the rituals that she's previously been too timid to attempt. Prospero recognizes this for what it is, just an effort to curry his favor, but he encourages it because he understands that this only makes both women easier to manipulate, and despite his charm, which is Vincent Price's charm, he's kind of a terrible human being. Francesca wakes in the middle of the night to find her crucifix missing, and strange chanting in Prospero's voice coming from somewhere in the castle. She follows it back to the chambers that we mentioned earlier, she follows it all the way through them, she enters the forbidden room and finds it to be a sinister black all over with a single blood-red window where Prospero sleeps in a coffin. Now obviously if this were a little bit more reality-based, we would have to have a little talk about how Prospero is so able to easily and openly flaunt the Catholic Church in Italy of all places, but again, this is very much a fairy tale with a fairy tale sensibilities, and so Prospero has the undiminished authority of a ruler in the fairy tale sense. He is a symbol of authority as much as a literal figure of one. In any event, he does nothing to punish Francesca for the intrusion, and she flees in terror. Which, you know, I mean, you find somebody sleeping in a coffin, yeah, you're probably going to freak out a little. The next day, while indulging in some falconry, he gives a bit more of his philosophy to Francesca. He had her remove her cross out of respect for the dead deity it represents, not because it offended him. He simply thought it was unseemly to wear it as though God was still alive. He worships Satan, who allows him to see the world for what it is. It's a place of pain and suffering where people must be taught harsh lessons in order to survive. Now, first off, it has to be noted that this film is way ahead of its time. Not only does the big boom in satanic movies not really start until the 70s in The Exorcist, but the Church of Satan itself wasn't even founded until 1966. As a result, Prospero's Satanism is composed mostly of a garbled version of Gnosticism. Now, I don't want to pretend I'm an expert, but the really rough version of Gnosticism is that the Gnostics believed that the world and humanity was created by a corruption of God known as the Demiurge, who prized materialism due to its flawed nature and who passed on its obsession with the material world to its creations. Gnostics believed that the way to escape this trap was to reject the trappings of the material world and to focus purely on the spiritual form. This was taken to Christ by Christians as a form of heresy because to them God created the world and if the Demiurge was evil it was like saying Satan created the world because one of the very common ways that Christians incorporate other religions into their worldview was just saying that any other deity was another name for Satan. In fact, if you ever play Final Fantasy, you can see this even in one of the most ludicrous examples ever. The demon Bahamut that you summon is actually a corruption of the word Muhammad. This was how they thought of the prophet Muhammad in the Islamic faith, was that it was a demon called Bahamut. So that's that then. 
Uh, the religion that Price describes also borrows heavily from Aleister Crowley. Now, not the real Aleister Crowley, mind you, who believed in neither God nor the devil and who mostly played around with satanic imagery in his writings and in his social interactions in order to kind of put the wind up hypocritical notions of propriety, but more like the various fictional and fictionalized portrayals of him as a sinister occultist in league with inhuman powers, the most common one you think of is The Devil Rides Out, not the movie, but the novel it was based on, which was very heavily influenced by Crowley's writings and his infamous life story. The point is, much like Crowley, Prospero believes that God is absent from the universe and he can therefore do anything he wants. Case in point, two guests, a Scarlatti and his wife, arrive after passing through the village only to be told that, hey, you came the wrong way and you're being denied arrival and also you're probably going to catch the plague. Scarlatti desperately pleads to be allowed entrance, even offering his wife up to Prospero as the price of admittance, only be told that Prospero's already slept with her, which, again, Price plays this whole thing with such suave and elegant menace, and he is pointing out to Francesca that, that Scarlatti isn't ostensibly a bad man. He is, considers himself to be a good Christian, but note that he his notions of, of decency collapse as soon as his life is in danger. Scarlatti begs to be spared the agonies of the Red Death, and, of course, Prospero responds by killing them both. Out of mercy, of course. Meanwhile, down in the dungeons, we finally catch up with Gino and Ludovico. They're being trained in swordsmanship in preparation for combat with each other to the death. This is the latest twist that Prospero has on the choose-which-one-will-die gambit he tried earlier. But Gino instead attacks his trainer and gains the upper hand mostly out of audacity and unpredictability just as Prospero and Francesca arrive. There's a wonderful line about the best swordsman in Italy would not fear the second best swordsman, but he would be terrified of what the worst might do. Prospero decides to find a more suitable torment when they refuse to fight again, one that doesn't simply involve torturing or murdering them. He's not interested in just inflicting pain. He could do that anytime he wanted. He's clearly very interested in degrading and breaking their faith in order to validate his own worldview of God as absent and powerless. He considers himself to be a pragmatist, instructing, instructing Christians in the necessary understanding they must have in order to survive in a cruel world. It's a remarkably detailed and nuanced character study for a movie that feels very much like just an improvised fairy tale in a lot of other ways, and Price genuinely rises to the occasion with a wonderful performance that is simultaneously very over-the-top and very subtle in its own little way. It has to be said, Prospero's relationship with Francesca is much more interesting and compelling than the one she has with her supposed fiancé or the one she has with her own father. Uh, meanwhile, Juliana demonstrates her commitment to Satanism by branding herself with an upside-down cross. It's a short, sensationalistic scene, but it's very impressive, and again, this is the sort of thing that you couldn't do if you followed the Hayes Code. This is why being an independent production helps. 
Elsewhere still, Hoptoad approaches Alfredo with a proposition for him after first assuring him that he's not upset over the mistreatment of Esmeralda. He's not interested in her at all. He wants to demonstrate his allegiance to Alfredo with an idea for the masquerade that will startle and astonish the other guests, showing up Prospero at his own ball. When Alfredo agrees and asks to hear more, uh, Hop Toad suggests a gorilla costume, which probably would have been a lot cooler in medieval Europe than 1960s Hollywood, where they found excuses to work a gorilla costumes into every damn movie they could. There's a gorilla costume in the a Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy comedy Trading Places, for Pete's sake. But, back in medieval Europe, when great apes were not well known, it would probably have been pretty impressive. Also, anyone familiar with the Poe stories could probably guess how this plan is going to go. That night, Juliana visits Francesca with a plan. She does not want Francesca around anymore. She correctly sees her as a rival for Prospero's affections and is fully aware that her life depends on keeping Prospero interested in her and happy with her. So she offers to bribe a guard or two so that Francesca can go down to the dungeons with a key that Juliana provides, rescue Gino and Ludovico, and sneak out of the castle. Francesca does sneak down, and does free them, but they're discovered and they have to kill three guards in the course of their escape attempt. And when they finally do get to the castle gate, it turns out the bribed guard on duty has been replaced by Prospero himself. Now, this is an interesting scene that crops up a lot in movies like this, this sort of false resolution. They have these, these important scenes that feel like they're climaxes to the movie, but we know that the movie isn't over yet, you know, it's, it's not been long enough. So, in this case, a daring escape aided by a rival is a very logical way for this movie to end, and it does get a big action sequence, but the tension isn't really from the danger, it's from the success. The better things go, the more we know we're being set up for some sort of disastrous setback. In this case, their plans are discovered. Uh, Prospero says that, that Juliana did not betray Francesca to him. He, he says she betrayed me, implying that he found out through some other means that we're not quite clear on. Possibly the bribed guard turned out not to be as bribed as he said, but we don't find out the details. It's not important. The important part is the reveal when the guard turns, and it's Vincent Price. Francesca pleads for their freedom, insisting they've done no harm, but Prospero takes a sort of sadistic glee in pointing out that her fiancé and her husband have killed three people. It's a mortal sin. He's, by their own law and their own lights, they are guilty, and it's a taunt for which they have no real answer. As with a lot of modern Satanists, who are doing it for a much more beneficial reason, Prospero delights in pointing out the numerous petty hypocrisies inherent in the Christian faith. The next evening at the feast before the masquerade, Prospero flaunts his power of life and death over his guests with a show of cruelty at Gino and Ludovico's expense. He brings out five daggers, one of which has been anointed with a deadly poison that kills within seconds and demands that they alternate cutting themselves with the daggers. Obviously, trigger warning for self-harm fear for anyone who has experience with that. 
Ludovico goes first, giving himself the best odds at the beginning, but the worst should it proceed to the end, and they go ahead with the test, and there's a lovely reaction shot. There's many lovely reaction shots. This is a very tense scene, but the most important reaction shot to me is the one of Juliana watching the contest with a red rose nestled between her breasts, which I can only assume was a very deliberate use of color here. The tension in the scene comes more from the pauses than the cuts. Neither man is particularly afraid of that, but everyone watches them counting off the seconds to make sure that they're not going to drop dead before the next dagger is tested. In the end, they go through the first four daggers, and with only one dagger left, Ludovico draws it and tries to murder Prospero instead, who stabs him in his chest for his troubles. Prospero wants to kill Gino as well, saying that the test was not conducted fairly because Ludovico didn't sacrifice himself, but when Gino points out that killing him would make him a martyr, he instead decides to banish him off to the plague-stricken village. Prospero then sends his guests off to prepare for the masquerade, but Francesca offers herself to study Satanism at his side if he'll only relent and save Ludovico, or excuse me, save Gino. Ludovico's a little bit past saving at this point. Juliana, not to be outdone, says she's ready to become the devil's bride. But Gino's already been thrown out, and he wanders the forest in a haze of despair, only to meet the monk from the beginning doing a tarot reading. Gino confesses his fears of Prospero, of the plague, of everything that's going on. I'll admit, I still think he's kind of a bland hero archetype. He's not allowed to be nearly as interesting as the others by the very tight and constricted role he has in the film, but he gets a good scene here. Uh, the monk promises a sign to lead him along the wrong, right path, and they part ways. Gino then winds up meeting with the last of the surviving villagers who are going to Prospero's castle to beg for mercy. Yeah, that's going to go well. Meanwhile, Alfredo gets into his gorilla costume, and Hoptoe dresses up in yellow face to pretend to be his keeper in a scene that's obviously dated and racist and pretty awful. Uh, speaking of racist and dated, Juliana's marriage to the devil comes in the form of ingesting a hallucinogenic potion that makes her believe she's on a stone altar being sacrificed again and again and again by what appear to be very stereotypically and appropriating uh, costumes of several world religions. Uh, afterwards, she wakes convinced that she's immortal under Satan's protection, but Prospero holds the opposite view, sending her directly to meet her new husband by having her slashed and pecked to death by his trained raven. She really should have known better, better than to wear a burgundy dress for the ritual. The villagers show up at the castle, and Prospero has them executed as well. In a scene, it feels a bit like a repeated beat from Scarlatti. Uh, he does spare a child. Uh, not really clear whether he's just, that's too much evil even for him, or whether he just thinks, hey, you know, it's going to be kind of funny watching this kid try to survive in the middle of winter in the middle of a plague. Gino having tried and failed to persuade the villagers not to go to the castle, does not stick around for the massacre. He comes back, though, using a makeshift grappling hook to scale the castle walls, and when he reaches the top, the red monk is waiting for him. 
He tells Gino to wait, assuring him that he won't be discovered because the guards have already perished from the Red Death, and promises that Francesca will come to him. Hoptoad tells Esmeralda to be prepared to flee, then escorts Alfredo to the ball and playfully lowers a chandelier onto him, then jokingly ties him to it, then accidentally spills brandy all over him, then inadvertently sets fire to it with a candle, burning the noble to death. Prospero, who is disguised as a sheik in, it has to be said, another very racist costume, is amused by the murder more than horrified. But then he sees a reveler wearing red, and we all know that the party is about to end. He pursues the guest into the yellow chamber, and from there into the purple chamber, and from there into the white chamber, and from there into the black chamber with the red window. He demands that the visitor reveal himself... And the monk is does raise his head so that he can be seen under the hood, but he is wearing a mask as well. And uh, as Prospero tries to de guess the identity of the mysterious reveler, he finally deduces him, quite incorrectly, to be Satan himself, or an emissary thereof. The Red Monk says he is there to collect many souls, but not all, and Prospero compounds his error in logic by assuming that he's one of the few to be spared. And as the clock strikes one, the unmasking begins, and each guest is in turn unmasked as a victim of the Red Death. They dance one final dance together, the Dance of Death, and... It, there's a lot of lovely and very sinister camera work here with a funereal atmosphere. This is where we get a lot of the camera movement I was talking about, this dance. This is actually one that Cor Corman himself said did not have enough time to be really shot properly, but it looks gorgeous. And the atmosphere clearly affects Prospero, who's unusually nervous, and tries to cover it up with some friendly chatter to what he believes to be his lord and master, Satan. He asks for Francesca to be spared along with him, and the monk sends her away to the battlements, which seemingly confirms Prospero's belief in his own safety and power and influence over even Satan himself. But then the red monk says he's not Satan, and that Prospero's pact preserves nothing. Every man, as he puts it, makes his own god, his own devil, his own heaven, and his own hell. Which is a lovely turn of phrase. Prospero, uh is furious, he chases the, the the monk down and pulls off his mask to reveal his own face, and the moment of his death, as the monk says. The monk has a wonderfully, wonderfully resonant and sonorous voice. I'm not doing it justice. Prospero panics, tries to flee, the revelers block his path at every turn, they finally drop to the ground and die, leaving Prospero alone with his crimson-faced doppelganger. He flees his own face and the moment of his death, going deeper and deeper into the chambers, closing them behind him, but when he finally bars the last chamber, the Red Death is in there, waiting for him, claiming him at last. And darkness and decay and the Red Death held illimitable dominion over all. Afterwards, a series of monks, each their own form of death, meet and compare notes on the people they killed and spared. It's kind of an unfortunate ending, to be honest, because they all have their own brightly colored robes. There's like an orange death and a blue death and a, a purple death, and it looks like nothing so much as a meeting of a particularly religious group of Power Rangers. 
That's not the film's fault, obviously, though. And the closing credits, introduced over a tarot reading that ends with the death card, is a lovely way to finish out the story at last. And will I keep it? Well, I'll admit, I'm still mulling it over. It's a gorgeous film on just a visual level. It's dripping with beautiful cinematography and a wonderful performance by Vincent Price that is probably worth the price of admission itself, no pun intended. But I'm not sure how much patience I'll have for this kind of theatrical, stylized movie on a regular basis. I don't know if I'll necessarily pop it back in. On the other hand, it's beautiful. And, and it is the kind of movie that I could watch with other people who are not necessarily big-time horror fans. I'm definitely going to hang on to it for a while, at least, because it's a double-sided DVD with another Poe adaptation on the flip side, The Premature Burial. And if you're excited to hear that we'll be doing that later, or if you just want to talk about anything that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr as at HalfPriceHorror. I'm also on Letterboxd as at Half Price Horror. No spaces on any of those, and no ad on the Letterboxd one, it must be said, where you can see reviews of all the movies I've watched for the podcast and a list of everything I intend to tackle in future episodes. I love hearing from people. I'd love it if people offered suggestions. I know that the Friday the 13th movies are going to take up a big part of it. I'm going to be doing Hellraiser fairly soon, the Stone Tape fairly soon, but beyond that, there's a lot of breathing room if people want me to prioritize a specific movie. You can also rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. Again, due to the weird algorithms, it's either a five-star review or you might as well not leave one, which is kind of sucky and makes everyone pressure everyone into leaving five-star reviews, which makes me feel terrible. But, you know, if you're going to leave a review, yeah, a five-star one is the one that matters for purposes of the weird algorithm that makes this super competitive. <sighs> it's a living, except it's not a living for me. It's a hobby. And next time on Half Price Horror, we go back to Crystal Lake as the Friday the 13th series officially enters the Hold My Beer phase of its run. That's right, we're getting the first entry with Zombie Jason, 1986's Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6. See you then.